On July the 8th, 1853, residents of feudal Japan beheld an astonishing sight. Foreign warships entering Edo Bay under a cloud of black smoke. Two coal-burning frigates towing two sloops. Commodore Matthew Perry of the United States Navy had arrived to force the long-secluded country to open its doors to American commerce. It's the fact that these were steamships. That is what would have struck people on the shore as especially unusual or alarming. I imagine it would have seemed absolutely terrifying, these huge, almost fire-breathing, smoke-belching, enormous things appearing over the horizon. Is this the end of the world? Sort of idea. But also, at the same time, maybe some people would have thought, what is going on? This is amazing. Who are these people? Where have they come from? What's going to happen next? Boatloads of Japanese artists and illustrators rushed out to draw the black ships from the moment they appeared. The British Library in London has an incredible hand-painted scroll over three metres long with eight panels depicting the startling foreign intrusion. I took a look at it with Hamish Todd, head of the library's East Asian collection. This is for members of the American crew that was on uh, one of Commodore Perry's ships. Two slightly bored-looking marines who are resting on their rifles. And then there are two officers brandishing swords who have wonderful moustaches and um, side whiskers. Sort of mutton-chop whiskers. The Americans were, of course, as alien to the Japanese as the Japanese were to the Americans. They were, depending on the viewer, strange, curious and hairy. A lot of these early Japanese depictions focus on things like facial hair and the noses. I mean, they're not really very flattering descriptions, are they? Sort of long noses, kind of sort of ludicrous, slightly rolling, drunken poses, vacant expressions and this kind of over-exaggerated facial hair. I mean, they're, they're almost grotesque. Well... The scrolls, such as the interest in them, that they were copied many, many times. So this may not originally have been done by somebody who witnessed these people and um, objects. So it's a little bit like early modern or medieval um, North European depictions of an elephant or a rhinoceros then. So so it may be that this is somebody who's told, did you see those extraordinary guys with that bizarre hair on the side of their face? And this is somebody else's rendering. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> From the Rothermere American Institute in Oxford, this is The Last Best Hope, the podcast that looks at America from the outside in. I'm Adam Smith. The Perry Expedition of 1853 was a fascinating cultural and political encounter. How did it come about and what does it tell us about America's place in the world? To answer those questions, I'm joined by Robert Hellyer, Professor of History at Wake Forest University in North Carolina and a specialist in the history of early modern and modern Japan, and Brian Rouleau, Professor of History at Texas A&M University and author of With Sails Whitening Every Sea, Mariners and the Making of an American Maritime Empire. Before we actually come to the Perry expedition and this moment of arrival his first arrival in July 1853. I want to just back up a little bit, kind of widen our lens and think a little bit about American maritime power. In your uh, book, Brian, you have this great quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, the famous French liberal who became famous for writing his book, Democracy in America, in which he, he, 
he predicted the United States will one day become the first maritime power of the globe because they're born to rule the seas as the Romans were to conquer the world. And how did he have that vision? Why was that something that in the early 19th century could be said of the new United States, Brian? He is writing at a moment when the United States has just recently emerged out of a war with Great Britain over neutral rights at sea, the right of American vessels and American sailors uh, to trade. So that's the war, the war of 1812, so-called. Precisely, precisely. And uh, he also bore witness to a moment of rather accelerated sort of naval buildup on the part of the United States. And the United States was... Um, uh, in terms of tonnage, uh, in terms of uh, the size of its maritime community, was the second largest commercial maritime power in the world uh, after Great Britain. But uh, it did look as though the United States would overtake uh, Great Britain in terms of the size of its merchant fleet toward towards the the, the middle or, or or towards the end of of the nineteenth century. And so already by the eighteen twenties or thirties, the the United States was a second maritime power ahead of the Dutch, ahead of the French. Absolutely, and people are aware of this, and they are they are crowing about it uh, in their public speeches, in their political addresses. Uh, the title of my book, With, With Sails Whitening Every Sea, uh, refers to a, a sort of a mode of expression, a, a phrase that was tossed around quite a bit by American politicians talking about a sort of a future where the sort of white canvas of, of, of American sails would be uh, ubiquitous. And as they were sort of keen to emphasize, uh, unlike uh, British maritime power, which was thought of as sort of principally military or naval in its orientation, American power would be expressed uh, through the kind of peaceful uh, expansion of commercial enterprise. Um, through commerce. That, that's the fantasy that Americans have. So the idea is that the, the, the British Empire, which relied on the Royal Navy, relied on, on force, on, on, on gunboats to establish bridgeheads from which commerce might flow. But the American idea, the idea of of white Americans in the early Republic was that the new, this new great Republic of the West, the United States would exert its influence around the world through the power of trade and commerce and the free exchange of peoples. That was the, that's the fantasy you're describing. Yes. Yes. The reality is that, that, that kind of geopolitical calculation uh, on the part of American policymakers in many ways depended upon the existence of a Royal Navy that was doing the, the heavy lifting required to police the world's sea lanes. And so it was a very sort of convenient arrangement where Britain could be castigated for its military influence around the world, but the United States would fundamentally benefit from in sort of incursions and military expeditions engaged in by by Britain but the fantasy is a powerful part of the rhetoric and the and the kind of political speechifying at the time um robert let's let's bring you in here i've been looking with uh, a curator at the british library at a, a scroll which shows the arrival of perry's expedition uh on the 8th of july 1853 a beautiful, highly coloured uh, set of images depicting the Perry expedition from the perspective of the Japanese. I'd like to sort of 
take us back to that day. I mean, you're you're a historian of Japan. What kind of society was it in 1853? What did people in Japan know about the outside world, and and how do you think they would have reacted to the arrival of these steamships? Maybe the the biggest thing to just talk about in the contrast with Western Europe and the United States is Japan's a state at peace, and it's been at peace since the early 17th century. Um, and Japan is remarkable in the world um, for maintaining that peace. And so much of that was coming out of the decisions made in the 17th century by the leaders of the Tokugawa shogunate, who were the uh, the central authority, having a very class guided society that you have the samurai 6% of the population dominating with all political power most economic power over the commoners who is the rest of the population japan had also then set up a system of limited uh, connections to the outside world because japan like every other pacific state at this time in the early 19th century wanted to trade with the biggest economy in the pacific and that's china and so japan had set up a system that worked very well but nonetheless limited interaction with the outside world. There was information coming in, particularly one example was through the Dutch, who had a small mission in Nagasaki, which is a port city in Kyushu, the southern island. And they would share information with Japanese officials. The elites had a lot of information uh, about the outside world. Common people, less so. And one of the things about how the commoners would learn about the news of the day was through these broadsheets. And so they would be made very quickly and be sold at, at a cheap price in a city, Edo, uh, which was larger than New York at this time. Uh, Japan was a more urbanized society than, than the United States. I mean, that was going to change uh, in, in later in the 19th century. So the, the knowledge of the elites was higher than, of course, the commoners. But there was a lot of curiosity um, about the outside world. And this really showed in how people were consuming these broadsheets that were produced of the, of the Perry Mission. I'm really interested in the extent of urbanization. I'm fascinated that Edo, which is the city that is today Tokyo, you say was a, was a, was a bigger city in 1853 than New York City. How was that urbanization supported? What were the factors that had led to that level of, of urbanization? And was that something that was new or was, or was that had also been the case for two centuries or more? Uh, no, that started particularly, Edo was in the late 16th century, just a fishing village, um, but it became the capital of the Tokugawa shogunate. And Japan had a system, a feudal system of the shogunate dominated roughly 260 lords. These are independent, largely independent domains. But in order to make sure that the lords were showing their loyalty to the shogun, they had to go to Edo every other year. Uh, they had maintained a residence in Edo, and they had to leave their family and their firstborn son in Edo as hostages. This was the first start of how Edo became such a big city. How And what about technological development? What technologies were in use in Japan in the 1850s? Or to ask the question a different way, what was the nature of the technological gap between the Japan of 1853 and the United States of 1853? Well, 
there, there certainly was a technological gap. But in things like infrastructure, one of the reasons why that you had limited infrastructure was purposeful. The Tokugawa shogunate wanted to keep peace and wanted to keep in power. So, for example, around Edo, they limited the bridges that could be built. And they had for their highway running between Kyoto and Edo was limited to foot traffic. Sounds crazy, but this was the idea of how you're going to protect your regime. There was also no, just to contrast what Brian was talking about, the American merchant marine. There was not a merchant marine. There was simply a plan or laid out uh, starting in the 17th century and continuing to have ships that can only really do coastal runs. And in part because you didn't need that, the foreigners who wanted to trade with you came to you. Uh, the Dutch came, the Chinese came, uh, and through what is today Okinawa, and also through an island in between Japan and Korea, there was trade going on with China and with Korea, respectively. So I guess to finish off your aspect, technological difference, in, in the time of, of Japan in the 16th century, when it was a warring states period, and when Japan invaded Korea, Japan had the most advanced guns in the world enter into a peaceful period, you're not developing the technology compared to with European states or the United States, where you are always planning and preparing for interstate war. So that's where the real gap comes in the technology, uh, particularly military technology. That's incredibly helpful um, overview, Robert. Thank you so much. Brian, let me ask you about Commodore Perry. Who was Commodore Perry and what was the purpose behind this expedition and what were they trying to achieve? So uh, Matthew Perry was a sort of a, a, a long-serving officer in the American Navy. He had spent actually a fair amount of time on what was known as the U.S. African Squadron, uh, which in conjunction with Great Britain had been involved in the suppression of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, he had been an important figure in the initial settlement and sort of preservation of the American colony that had been established in Liberia. And he wasn't initially terribly enthusiastic when the Navy Department tapped him to lead a, an expedition uh, to, uh, to Japan to, quote unquote, open the country to, to trade. Uh, but uh, sort of dutiful sailor that uh, he was, he eventually assumed command of the mission. These were the premier, the brand new uh, steam-powered uh, uh, vessels that uh, were expected to comprise the new American Navy. So this is, this is cutting-edge technology. Yes, for, for the era, not only in terms of locomotion, but also in terms of firepower. And uh, the idea was to make a particularly strong impression on the Japanese by presenting them with uh, what the Americans boasted was uh, the premier military technology of of the the era. With what aim, Brian? I mean, they weren't they weren't trying to colonize Japan. But what was what was the purpose? There was absolutely an intention, an aim to open a commercial door in Japan, but that that there was far more interest in thinking about Japan as a stepping stone to. China. And so Japan would serve that important strategic purpose. It would act as a coaling station for a steamship route that would connect 
the newly acquired American territories in California, Oregon, uh, uh, Washington, uh, with China, because the real purpose is access to the fabled China market. But it was also the case that America had a good deal of uh, whaling interests in the Pacific. Uh, and there, there, there was a good deal of concern that um, in the past couple of decades, American whalemen uh, who had been shipwrecked in Japan were subject to mistreatment. Um, and a lot of this is sensationalized, um, but there's a sense that a kind of a, a more regular diplomatic and commercial relationship needed to be facilitated or negotiated with Japan in order to uh, preserve the the lives and well-being of future American mariners who may wi- who may wind up for one reason or another in in Japan. Robert, I mean, you've already mentioned that there's a long-standing Dutch trading post uh, in Japan, and that there's existing trade with China and Korea. What was it that set apart the Perry expedition? Or are we over-dramatizing it from a, a Western or American perspective? I mean, from, from the Japanese point of view, how big a deal was the arrival of the Perry expedition in 1853? Had they kind of seen this sort of thing before? Were they used to these sorts of arrivals, these intrusions, these attempts to penetrate the Japanese market? Or was there something different about this? Yes, there had been Western ships that had been visiting Japanese coastline. Uh, in Ryukyu, uh, today's Okinawa, there had been a lot of French and British ships, mercenaries coming since the 1840s. Uh, 1846, Commodore James Biddle visited Japan in a mission that did not go well for the Americans. Uh, he, In a moment when he was to, going to enter another ship, he was pushed by a samurai and fell backward. Um, and the ship was surrounded by small Japanese boats. And Biddle, he was praised at the time by the Dutch and others, uh, was very peaceful um, about uh, this this encounter and said, right, well, we'll just go back um, and, and we'll not try and make a fuss this time. I, I mentioned that because Perry looked at Biddle's mission. He read about Dutch accounts uh, about Japan, and he came with a real plan. He came with a plan that he was going to be very intentional about who he would meet, when he would meet them, and where. And also, he was very intentional about not directly using force, but showing that the Americans had force. And the implication that this was only one part of a great, vast navy um, that could be on Japanese shores in a short time. So we, we've got here in, in front of us a copy of the letter that President Millard Fillmore gave to Perry. It's addressed to the Japanese emperor. And it, it says, as, as you say, Robert, um, our territories of Oregon and the state of California lie directly opposite to the dominions of your imperial majesty. Our steamships can go from California to Japan in 18 days. So on the one hand, he's like saying, hey, we're neighbors here. You know, we're just we're just right next to you, you know, across the Pacific Ocean. But the implication is, you know, well, there's nothing between us. Right. We can get to you in 18 days. There's there's a there's a threat there. Is that partly what you have in mind, Robert, when you say that Perry's strategy was to give the impression that there was an overwhelming force, a kind of shock and awe potential 
that they were choosing for the time being not to use, but that could be deployed at any moment. Yes, very much so. I mean, they played their played their cards very well. I mean, it wasn't possible. I, I shouldn't say it wasn't possible, but it would have been very, very hard for a steamship to sail directly across the Pacific in 18 days, as outlined at that moment, simply because of the coal reserves. So he's very good at presenting this. And for example, the ship's uh, will go along the Japanese coastline and say that they're surveying it and shoot their cannon, which caused a lot of, of fear uh, amongst the, the Japanese living around that area. Um, and the intention that, hey, if we don't get a treaty here, we can sail unmolested right up into Edo to this huge major city to your capital and cause some real damage. So what actually happens then? So we really only got the story as far as um, the Perry expedition arriving in this impressive way with the steamships and the stars and stripes flying and the, the cannons on board the ship. Uh, what happens next? Perry comes in 1853. There are some initial negotiations. He gives the letter, uh, Millard Fairmore's letter, and then he leaves and says, I'll be back in six months. He spends it in Hong Kong. And then when he comes back, uh, there's much more going on along the coastline amid a sort of a beach and area of which they set up some temporary, the Japanese set up some temporary buildings and the like. So this is where you have, for example, the Japanese also bringing in cultural show, if you will, of having sumo wrestling matches there. And also as a way to show force or their power um, is that the sumo wrestlers carry these huge bales of rice um, and just deliver them to the Americans who cannot carry them on their own um, as a way then of saying that we do have some power. Um, and so that's, that's some of the ways in which we see this, this encounter playing out. You know, I was particularly interested in Brian, um, a series of minstrel performances uh, that were given for sort of high ranking Japanese commissioners, uh, both on the beach and aboard Perry's, Ships now. Minstrelsy is arguably the most uh, popular form of entertainment in the mid nineteenth century United States, and it was the case that uh, Perry, you know, at a at a kind of a critical moment uh, in the expedition, actually uh, goes below and speaks with the sailors and asks them to. Uh, engage in uh, that sort of uh, blackface performance, what they, which they had been accustomed to, to doing. They'd already been doing this when they, when the fleet was anchored in China. They, they had been engaging in this sort of minstrel performance uh, throughout the duration of the expedition, and this was very common amongst mariners more generally that they would, uh, that they would sort of, uh, that they would form their own minstrel troops and offer, uh, offer songs, offer dances to various peoples around the world. And so there, there, there are sort of these, I think, very interesting moments where uh, the sailors are, are the ordinary sailors are sort of given a, an important role in sort of attempting to sort of bridge the cultural divide by offering the what Perry imagines will be these sort of very humorous and entertaining performances that will sort of ease some of the tension and facilitate more in the way of kind of high level diplomatic negotiation. I mean, this is this is just fascinating about the minstrelsy. So you've got these huge sumo wrestlers picking up bales of rice and giving them to, as it were, puny American soldiers who then just drop, just drops them straight at their feet. Um, and then, and then when the when, as it were, when it comes to the Americans' turn to kind of show off their culture, they've got these sailors blacked up 
larking around pretending to be these kind of caricatures of African-Americans. I mean, the whole thing is completely bizarre. I mean, how on earth do you think that would have gone down with the, with the, with the Japanese watchers? What, what I'd seen in the kind of limited capacity of one set of commissioners to actually dialogue with, with another, I mean, there, there, there was a way in which the Japanese were able to see in minstrelsy a kind of a reflection of their own kind of kabuki uh, and, and and other the- theatrical per- performance, just just in the kind of the exaggerated sort of sort of painting and and stage design and kind of buffoonish or, or comedic dimensions, uh, you know, there, there there's a way in which there's something vaguely recognizable to the Japanese, and and the American observers are always sort of emphatic in how the Japanese seem to genuinely enjoy what they're watching. Uh, Perry famously remarks that uh, at one point during the minstrel show, one of the higher ranking commissioners was laughing so hard that he actually fell off of his seat and and onto Perry himself, knocking Perry down. And Perry was a little put out because, uh, you know, he's all about dignity and composure and his uniform was, was damaged in this, in this incident. But on the other hand, you know, he says, well, but this man really seems to have had a good time, you know, so that's got to bode well for for our future sort of relationship with this. Uh, and, and there's this sort of amusing way in which the Americans become convinced as to the success of their diplomatic mission, precisely because the entertainment portion seems to have gone off so well. You know, if if the Japanese seem to enjoy this, this purely American art form, uh, then perhaps this does, in fact, uh, indicate that you know, we'll be able to work with these people, that, that there's a potential for partnership here. Um, so the, so the, I, don't, I just don't think the minstrelsy is this sort of one-off, uh, you know, sort of quirky sideshow. I think it's actually very important to the overall sort of trajectory of, of the negotiations. So Perry arrives in July 1853. Uh, after a little bit of uh, a standoff, he delivers his letter from... President Fillmore, and then he goes away for six months to give him time to think about it, and then he comes back. Robert, what happens in Japan? I mean, what's the reaction to this? What is the impact of these demands? Well, first, uh, the political impact is is quite significant because the Tokugawa shogunate uh, takes a pretty dramatic steps in the leader saying that this is an important moment. And to come back to what you asked earlier as to why the Perry mission is so important, why we talk about it today, was that they decided, the Tokugawa leaders decided to translate Fillmore's letter and distribute it to the lords to get their opinions, which was not something that the shogun had really done before, saying that we need your opinions, that we have this sort of democratic way of, of approaching it. Um, and the opinions were quite mixed. Some of uh, these lords said we need to give in to the American demands, accept it, open trade. Others said we can have a treaty now um, and in interim build up our military power and expel these these uh, Westerners, these barbarians at a later point. Um, but simply the fact that you brought in to the political discourse all these lords was such a huge event. Um, and helped a cascading of events later on, where you see then the lords challenging in different ways, questioning in different ways, the authority and power of the Tokugawa shogunate. And so this leads then in a lot of ways, there's a lot going on between that, but the Meiji Restoration of 1868, when 
the Tokugawa falls and a new regime um, set up by an alliance of two, led, led by two powerful domains, uh, takes over and, and sets a course to develop Japan as a modern nation state. So you, you do think there is a there is a direct line, albeit there's no doubt a lot of other things going on, but you do think there's a direct line between the arrival of Matthew Perry in 1853 and the, the fall of the regime 15 years later? Oh, absolutely. It's it's one of many threads, uh, of course, that are going on towards this revolutionary moment in 1868. But uh, also, I mean, why Perry has been remembered and maybe why, another reason why we're talking about it today is because after the Meiji Restoration, the Meiji leaders wanted to present themselves as being new, modern, non-feudal of a, of a state that was forward-looking. And part of the ways they did this was to talk about the the, the now deposed Tokugawa regime as old, backward, feudal, and closed. And Perry's mission as being then a moment of change. I've seen many, uh, for example, Japanese officials or something going to America and mentioning Perry's mission as saying this is a turning point for us. Um, so yes, it is certainly something that's Focus on by Westerners and by the Americans in particular uh, of saying that American influence was key to changing Japan, but it's also fit into a narrative uh, for those in Japan who want to emphasize the reforms that take place after 1868. Brian, when Perry came back, uh, we sort of, uh, um, Robert and I were kind of skipping ahead a little bit there into the longer term impact. But when, when Perry came back after his six months of letting the Japanese think about it, did he get what he wanted? <laughs> that actually, that, that's, that's a, that's a very good, uh, that's a very good question. Um, I think that, you know, in, in the sense that a trading relationship did eventually emerge out of these negotiations and that uh, a, a, at least a, select number of ports were opened to to American commerce. And I think maybe more particularly for, for Perry, that there were clauses in the agreement that required the um, safe conduct and, and sort of safety was guaranteed for American sailors who were who were stranded or or shipwrecked on the shores of Japan, uh, which you know was something that Perry was in particular sort of very interested in in uh, securing. And uh, when Perry returned to the United States, I mean, he was absolutely uh, sort of feted or celebrated as 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 a naval hero. So Robert has said that from the Japanese perspective, we are right to remember it as a uh, as a turning point because it had these it contributed to the ending of this regime, which had dominated Japanese society, as he's been explaining for, for two and a half centuries. What about from the United States point of view? Was the Perry expedition a turning point for the United States? What would you, how would you assess its significance in terms of the global development of the United States and its projection, its capacity to project itself overseas? I would say that it was a turning point, but you need a kind of a longer timeline um, along which to sort of assess its significance. Uh, I was I was intrigued by Robert's point about this sort of a 15-year window between uh, the arrival of Perry and, and the fall of the of the shogunate. I think in the case of the United States, um, 
what happens is uh, Perry is uh, celebrated, you know, for his heroic achievement, um, but that that those laurels are not allowed to rest on his head for very long because, of course, uh, he returns to the United States at a moment of uh, particularly fraught sectional tension between uh, the free and slave states. And very quickly, Perry's achievement uh, uh, is sort of lost in this sort of larger maelstrom of conflict and, and eventual armed conflict between uh, between a seceded Confederate States of America and and the United States, uh, and in that in that sort of um, sort of moment where you know American sort of strategic eyes and thinking you know turns inward towards the resolution of those sectional tensions, um, you know the the kind of attention that might or could otherwise have been paid to capitalizing on kind of Perry's opening of Japan is is lost. And in fact, Britain becomes the more significant player, commercially speaking, uh, economically speaking, politically speaking. Uh, uh, Britain and, and other European nations become, I think, more immediately significant to uh, to the sort of emerging sort of new regime in, in Japan than the United States does. Is this an instance of the United States um, paving the way for for British commercial expansion. I mean, you'd been talking earlier about how it had often operated the other way around, so that the Royal Navy created a kind of shield, created the space in which uh, American um, commerce could operate. But in, in this case, was it almost the opposite way around? The Perry Expedition created the space for uh, British capital to expand into the Japanese market. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I think that I mean you've I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head there. It it is kind of a curious irony uh here that um you know during sort of the almost one of the sort of singular early 19th century moments where the United States is responsible for, you know, opening a door commercially speaking, uh they are ultimately not the country is ultimately not able to capitalize on it exactly because there are mm. bigger fish to fry as they say. Uh and so Britain, you know, in in fact is able to take advantage of sort of the American initiative um, in in Japan. Could I just add something uh, to the points that, that Brian mentioned? The fact that the Americans follow up in sending Towns and Harris to negotiate a further treaty, and Harris is like Perry, very good at playing his cards that he has in his hand. Um, and to come back to the point that, that Brian mentioned earlier, he plays on the idea that Americans are more peaceful, that Americans are are traitors. But the British are a nation that's going to use force. And he says to the Japanese negotiators, look what's happening in China. This is at the time of the Second Opium War. Do you want these British to come and use force against you? Here you have with me a representative of a very peaceful, mainly commercially driven state. Let's make an agreement. Um, and so this is uh, a very, very significant because of the fact that that agreement then the following year that three Japanese ports are made treaty ports along the line of what had been established in China after the Opium War by the British. So there's, and, and after that point, certainly after Japan has a treaty port regime, the British merchants play initially a much more significant role in, in trade there. There's, to my knowledge, there's no feature like film in America made about Commodore Perry, but about Townsend Harris John Wayne starred in Barbarian and the Geisha, uh, 
um, <laughs> that is portrays uh, Townsend Harris negotiations and life in Shimoda in the city. Um, so not not a very good film. But, I've not uh, I've not seen it. <laughs> well, it <laughs> doesn't sound like you're really recommending it. No, no, but I just think it's intriguing that they decided to make a film yeah. uh, about Townsend Harris. Brian and Robert, thank you so much. This has been a really, really interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from Oxford University's RAI. My name is Adam Smith. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do like us or leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye.